Callaway Golf can't stop pushing limits, which is how they have managed to be the number one irons in golf for five consecutive years. That's why they used AI to create the new Maverick irons. AI has engineered a flash face cup in every Maverick iron for better distances in your entire set. Each club's center of gravity is positioned to optimize launch and help players find new distances. Get new distance at CallawayGolf.ca. Callaway, the number one irons in golf. Fault lines in the Liberal government were laid bare Monday with the resignation of Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Morneau had served as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's only finance minister since the Liberal government was elected in 2015, but he has opted to step down as an MP less than a year into the government's second term. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. I'm joined by the National Post's Chris Nardi to talk about the friction between Morneau and the PM that likely led to his departure, what this could mean for the direction of the federal government, and who his replacement will be. Don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Chris, despite being in what is normally deemed the dog days of summer when it comes to politics, there's a lot going on right now in Ottawa. Monday, Finance Minister Bill Morneau had a meeting with the prime minister, then stepped out in front of reporters and announced that he's stepping down, not only as finance minister, but as member of parliament. Why did Bill Morneau say it was time for him to step down? Well, according to Bill Morneau, there are a few reasons. And I think that the unsaid reasons are probably more important than the said reasons, uh, the expressed reasons, but we'll get there. Basically, what Morneau said during his Monday evening surprise press conference was that he had promised to be a maximum two-term finance minister when he first ran in 2015. And essentially, it was time for him to pass the reins on to someone who would be there for the longer term as Canada and the government enter what he says is the COVID-19 pandemic economic recovery phase. And since he says that is going to be, it's going to be difficult um, and it's going to be a long process, it's going to take many years. He says, you know, the government needs to put someone who's going to be in there for a long while in order to um, really just steer that economic recovery over the next few years. Now, obviously, what he didn't mention and what we also know is that there was a very, very growing uh, tensions between himself and his office and the prime minister's office, tensions that had boiled over into the public eye over the last, the week preceding his resignation. Mm -hmm. And those tensions were on all sorts of issues, uh, as reported by various media on how him and the prime minister didn't see eye to eye on how much spending should be done during the pandemic, um, on how business analysis, uh, how much analysis should be done for various programs before they're launched, uh, how much the wage subsidy should be worth. Should it be 10% like it was initially announced, or should it be the 75% that it eventually became? Um, There were a lot of disagreements between Morneau and Trudeau that just suddenly burst to light over the the week before his resignation. And at the end, it became clear that essentially neither man had confidence in each other, or they just simply couldn't agree anymore. Yeah. I mean, this is despite the fact that the prime minister who within the last week, was publicly stating that he had full confidence in his finance minister. And 
you know, the idea that Bill Morneau said he's, he's no more than a two-term finance minister, we're only 11, 10 months into his second term as, as finance minister. He's got three more years, presumably, to go through this whole economic recovery plan. Why now? Like, is it, is it, does it all boil down just to these kind of disagreements over policy? I think that a part of it is the fact that these disagreements over policy came to light. And you can understand through um, the news stories that basically spoke about it over the last few weeks. And there were many, there, you know, Globe and Mail, there were some in Reuters, there was Bloomberg. So a variety of people were talking, uh, anonymous high-ranking sources were talking to media, basically laying out issues between and disagreements between the finance minister and the prime minister uh, to the world. And so to be clear, disagreements between the prime minister and the finance minister are not rare. They're actually, in fact, probably the most common thing throughout any government Mm -hmm. for one simple reason. The prime minister's role is to enact policy and to generally make Canadians' lives better and easier, one can hope, whereas a finance minister's job is to to keep an eye on the public coffers, right? So what happens there is that you'll often, not always, but historically often get opposing views where the prime minister wants to spend and the finance minister's job is to say no. And so it's, like I said, so going back, it's not unusual to have disagreements. I think where this situation between Trudeau's office and Morneau's office became exceptional was when those disagreements come to light all of a sudden and lead to uh, stories, for example, like the Globe and Mail wrote, where they're basically saying that Trudeau isn't sure if he's going to keep Morneau as part of his economic relaunch team. Uh, or we don't know if Morneau's going to survive the upcoming cabinet shuffle that is rumored and now confirmed as of today, Tuesday. Um, th- there are all sorts of stories that were coming out. And when these tensions boil to the surface, that's when you start obviously having uh, some real long and hard thoughts uh, if you're Bill Morneau about, well, how much do they even want me here? If they're going to, if I feel like they're going to overrule me at, at the prime minister's office every time I try to make a decision or express an opinion, as it was reported over the last week, then why am I here if PMO is going to act like the finance minister in the first place? So what we know is that Monday, earlier this uh, August 17th, there was a face-to-face meeting between Trudeau and Morneau. The two men sat down and basically hashed out their differences. And from what I understand, Morneau said, listen, I, I don't think that I can stay here. And Trudeau didn't necessarily work very hard to keep him there. Basically, illustrating this divide and the broken confidence between the two men that led to this somewhat surprise, but not really resignation the same evening. You talk about uh, them hashing out their differences. One of the things that we'd, we'd heard in the last week or so is that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau had brought in former Bank of Canada and Bank of England Governor Mark Carney as some kind of financial advisor. Do you think that might have been kind of the final straw for Bill Morneau, the idea that, well, maybe my opinion on finances aren't wanted anymore. If if we're bringing in this other guy who's kind of seen as a, like a golden figure in, in liberal politics. I think, I don't know if it was the final straw, but I'd say that it was one of the many final straws, one of uh, many little pieces of straw that eventually broke that that camel's back. 
last week when the story came out first that Mark Carney was tapped to be an informal advisor to Trudeau, what that really signaled was um, like a, a, a solidification of these rumors that Carney is coming back to Canada. He wants to run for the Liberals, and eventually he probably wants to lead the Liberal Party. And obviously, when the Prime Minister is reaching out and tapping you know, well-known economic names like Mark Carney, who, um, for those who don't know, was formerly governor of the Bank of Canada. And then when that term finished, left to England and became governor of the Bank of England. Um, that definitely signals that the prime minister is starting to look elsewhere for his financial advice. And it certainly doesn't bode well on its own for Morneau at the time. But I'd say that it wasn't necessarily, you know, it's not obviously unusual for a prime minister to get second, third, and fourth opinions if he so chooses. I think that Carney news uh, becoming an informal advisor just kind of compounded with all the rest that we know of the disagreements between the prime minister's office and Morneau, the sense that Morneau feels like he's overruled and the sense that the prime minister's office feels that Morneau um, wasn't moving fast enough on some policies like the wage subsidy. I think all of that just kind of compounded all at the same time and collectively broke the camel's back. One of the lingering questions out of all of this is how much of a role the WE scandal played in Morneau's resignation. Now, I know that there are conservatives in the country and even the Bloc Québécois are, have been calling for the prime minister and the finance minister to step down over uh, the whole student summer grant program and the contract that was awarded to WE Charity and the personal connections between the Trudeau family and Bill Morneau's family and the charity. And then there was this $41,000 in travel expenses that Bill Morneau forgot to repay until the day he testified uh, to the finance committee. What role does this play in, in Morneau's departure? Uh, is this departure seen as a chance to, for the government to reset from that scandal or, or does it become secondary at this point? I think it's another part of, you know, that collective straw that I was discussing that, you know, broke the camel's back. So um, to recap a little bit, as you mentioned, Bill Morneau went and testified in front of the finance committee and basically admitted that uh, his family and him uh, had gone on two separate trips back in 2017 with We Charity that at the time had been paid for, or offered for free by We. Um, and that he thought he had reimbursed completely, but turned out that wasn't true. There was a $41,000 that he hadn't repaid, which he then, you know, three years later ended up repaying the day before he witnessed, he testified to that committee. Um, but obviously that creates a, a very obvious and, and blatant ethics issue where he was making decisions on outsourcing this $900 million program to we, all the while either knowingly or unknowingly owing money to we. Right. So uh, very much an appearance of conflict of interest there. I think so. What, you know, reports have said is that PMO was surprised by that news. They were caught off guard by that news. And it certainly was not an issue that they either wanted or expected to deal with, particularly, again, remembering that the prime minister himself is also under investigation by the ethics commissioner as well as Morneau for his involvement in the WE decision, because the Prime Minister is, you know, was involved voluntarily with the WE organization over the past decade. His family has been paid uh, copious amounts of money for speaking engagements. So the Prime Minister's office is definitely 
saying that the $41,000 reimbursement that never happened from Bill Morneau until recently to we uh, was absolutely a surprise. It was a, like a, a strike against him that definitely played into the decision to say, well, you know what, like if he can't really have that kind of, you know, financial thing in order, what um, what does it mean for his decisions when it comes to the pandemic? Uh, obviously, someone could easily retort, well, yes, you know, Morneau's errors were obviously blatant and uh, seemingly obvious. But, you know, the prime minister, once again, is also under investigations by the ethics commissioner. So it's not necessarily a case of the pot calling the kettle black, but there's seemingly a similar shade of color at this point. Now, to many, Bill Morneau was kind of seen as the adult in the room, kind of tempering the wide-eyed optimism of others in the prime minister's inner circle. With him out of the picture, is the government thrown into chaos? Is there someone seen as like a guiding, steady hand? I know that there's talk now that that Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will be stepping into that role. Is she seen as someone who can help right the ship for the liberals here? So the biggest issue we understand, like I said, between Morneau and Trudeau is that Morneau would say a lot of no to Trudeau's decision or his office's decision. And uh, the sense that I get is that by tapping into Christia Freeland as a finance minister, they're trying, they're hoping to get a slightly more collaborative Yes, not yes woman by any means, but a, a more collaborative approach between the finance minister's office and the prime minister's office. Obviously, Christian Freeland um, is well, very well regarded within the government. She's held crucial roles uh, throughout her um, the, the, the Trudeau mandate years. I think what they're hoping to get from Christian Freeland is someone who is willing to spend more enthusiastically, let's say, than Bill Morneau, who was more likely, from what reports say, to say no or to put his foot down or to ask for more of a business case and analysis before approving a new program or measure or spending. Obviously, all of this in the context of a year where the deficit is lining up to be a record $343 billion in a single year, right? (laughs) So, Obviously, Christopher Freeland's credentials don't need to be proven. She negotiated mm-hmm. NAFTA uh, as uh, the foreign, foreign, foreign minister. Uh, she is now deputy prime minister. She's working intergovernmental affairs, negotiating with the provinces. She's known throughout the country at every political level. Um, so her stepping in as finance minister is not surprising uh, in any way. But it's certainly, I think, for the prime minister's office, a hope that they might get a different personality with a different perspective on spending that might be a little bit less, let's say, reluctant than Bill Morneau. I just wonder, though, how how much more enthusiastically could we have a government spend in this situation? As you mentioned, the, the deficit is is north of $300 billion for the year. It's not as though you know, even if Bill Morneau was saying no or saying let's have a better business case, it's it's not as though, or it doesn't seem at least as though he was overruling what the prime minister wanted to do is, you know, we have a, a very robust uh, aid package to to help the economy get out of COVID. You know, what more could we expect from Christia Freeland as a finance minister if she's acting more collaboratively with a prime minister who wants to shell out money? Like, how big do we think the deficit could get? I, I'm not entirely sure how if it's, um, let's say, a dollar amount, like increasing the spending as much as maybe 
making it go through faster is my perception. Reports over the last week that were highlighting tensions between Morneau and Trudeau uh, basically mentioned that the Prime Minister's office frustration with Morneau was the fact that he would fight back or, or pr- push back, rather, I should say, on some suggestions and decisions from the prime minister's office uh, when it came to either boosting spending or creating new spending for the pandemic. And ultimately, the prime minister's office, from what I understand, won out on a lot of these decisions um, and, and these debates. But I think it's you know kind of the pushback period that was frustrating to them, whether it was you know, for the right reasons or the wrong reasons, it's hard to tell really um, at this point because we're not out of the pandemic. So there's no real hindsight. I obviously cannot say that Krista Freeland is going to come in here and say yes to everything or that she'll say no to everything the prime minister's office will say. But I think she just has a, a different perspective when it comes to these these aid programs. And she comes from more of, you know, Trudeau's perspective. That is, let's get the social nets out there. Let's get the the, the help out there. And then after that, we'll be able to recuperate the money in other ways by boosting the economy. Very much a Keynesian kind of model where when the economy is in the gutter, a, you know, more government intervention is necessary to kind of relaunch that machine. I can't say that Morneau didn't have that same perspective, but I think that Christian Freeland comes in with more of the same mind as Trudeau when it comes to that kind of spending and that kind of perspective. Uh, that's basically what, you know, the whispering, uh, the whispering voices in the halls of parliament say and so essentially that's probably why trudeau thought that this was a good fit it, they were they're very aligned in the way that they think and how they see the economy and relaunching the economy and so it'll be uh probably a more collaborative approach now in addition to to word that uh christian freeland is being tapped to replace bill morneau as fin- finance minister there's word uh, today, Tuesday morning, that Justin Trudeau is looking to prorogue Parliament, take about a, a month off, reset with a new throne speech uh, for a fall sitting of Parliament. What do we make of that move? Is it is it just, you know, we're going to have a new fi- finance minister reset the agenda? Or are there other things that come with proroguing that may kind of help the government reset as a whole? Yeah. So, you know, as you said, proroguing is is literally ending parliament and starting anew. So when you end parliament, you obviously shut down any bill that may have been on the floor, of which, to my knowledge, as of now, there are very few, or if there are any any at all, since the pre-pandemic period, uh, they're long forgotten at this point, since parliament hasn't been sitting, uh, you know, regularly for, for the many, many months. But what it also does end uh, is any committee that is studying uh, any issue at the moment. So as of now, many committees are sitting, um, and some of them, for example, are focusing on the We Charity scandal, as we know it, and really digging into every aspect of the We Charity deal uh, between the government and we. Um, and so there's certainly, I'm sure, an interest in the government to put an end to those studies and really kind of start start anew, start afresh. And to be clear, um, proroguing parliament is a very legitimate tool. It was created uh, with this in mind, to be able to really restart government. Trudeau never did it in his first mandate between 2015 and 2019, which was honestly un- more unusual than anything. Harper did it rather regularly, in fact, um, in, in his years as prime minister. So it can't be seen as necessarily an unusual maneuver, especially at a time when the government is 
talking about beginning the recovery phase of the COVID-19 pandemic plan. And so what the idea is you get a new finance minister come in, you prorogue parliament, you shut it all down and you start afresh with a new finance minister, new perspective, a new throne speech, which is there to set the table for what is to come. And then eventually probably a new budget or at least a fiscal update to, again, continue setting the stage for the future of Canada in what is this absolutely historic and unprecedented situation we've been through the pandemic. So, but there's, you know, as, as you suspect, there are many facets that come into play when, you know, determining if you prorogue parliament. And I don't think that um, the idea of shutting down committees was necessarily unpleasant to the Trudeau government at this point. <laughs> now, we're in a minority minority parliament situation. A throne speech is is a confident voting. A, voting on a throne speech is a confidence uh, vote. Do you get the sense that opposition parties could be hungry to send Canadians to the polls? You know, because of the we scandal, because of their thoughts on the COVID recovery plan. Like, what are the odds? Do you figure that we could uh, this could backfire on Trudeau and the Liberals, and we could face a fall election? Honestly, Dave, I'd love to say that I know, but I really don't. Um, There is one party only that has very explicitly stated that they want a fall election, and that's the Bloc Québécois. But beyond that, um, the other parties have been very mum on it for valid reasons, I'd say. So obviously, the Conservatives aren't expressing a clear point of view because they don't have a leader yet. And the next Conservative leader that will be replacing Andrew Scheer will only be coming in um, at the to, to run the party by the end of August. So without that clear direction, it's very hard to know what the Conservatives will ultimately decide to do. And if they'll be in a good position themselves to run a campaign, presumably in, in a pandemic, if it's in the fall. So a completely different type of campaign where, you know, door to door and face to face interactions with voters are virtually impossible or at least much more difficult. The NDP has also been relatively mum on their plans. But what they have kind of put out there is that they're not completely close to the idea, but it'll really depend on how the Trudeau government responds to their demands for additional social security nets for Canadians, additional spending and more protection basically for um, working class Canadians and those who are really affected by the COVID-19 pandemic economically. Um, And so I think there are a lot of factors still in play. There are a lot of moving pieces that make it really difficult to assess if there's a fall election. But my sixth sense honestly tells me it's unlikely just because it's a really difficult time to hold an election. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the parties are in, you know, in the NDP especially, are not in a financially strong position to run an election. The Liberals certainly don't want one. Conservative new leader may very well decide to, but it'll take three party, three opposition parties to make the government fall. Well, you know, I, I know that some people like to think that news slows down in the summertime, but I think summer 2020 is proof that that is hardly the case. Chris, thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Dave. Ten Three is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Chris Nardi. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. 